welcome to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Today I'm with Richard Hilton, founder of the pioneering gym chain Gymbox, London's original party gym and melting pot of fitness insanity, from surf-style workouts and glow stick raves, uh, laser lights and DJs are given. Welcome, Richard. Hi, Mary. Is that a fair summation of what makes Gymbox special or, or, or different, if you like, to other gym chains? Yes, I, I would say that is a fair summation. We try to set out to be different and we always do try and be different. Um, so what you've picked up on is the our unique selling points which are in our classes and that really is at the heartbeat of the gym. Um, we try to offer a, a array of different classes but not just to uh, achieve good fitness results but they're there to entertain and excite. Mm, okay well we're going to talk much much more about that over the next half hour or so but just to Go right back to the beginning. You didn't start out in the fitness industry, did you? My background is nothing to do with health and fitness. My background was uh, in advertising. I left the UK when I was 19, tried to get a job in uh, on Madison Avenue in New York. Your dad was an ad man, wasn't he? My dad, yeah, my dad was an ad man, had a, a small agency, a retail agency called Hilton Advertising, which he sold to Gray. Um, because he'd been in the industry, I was slightly paranoid about going into advertising in London. So I thought, why not give it a go in America? Uh, went out when I was 19, uh, basically with my CV. And we're talking what year here? Uh, I left in 1990. Uh, ended up walking up and down Madison Avenue and got a very, very junior position as an assistant account executive at a New York ad agency. I and was it all like mad men? Was it, uh, was it glamorous? The end I was at wasn't quite as glamorous because I was working seven days a week and 18 hours a day. Um, but I think, I think at the more senior level, it was, it, it, it was sort of probably not the heyday of advertising in the sort of madman days, but it was a very fun industry to be in. Mm. I spent seven years working at various ad agencies in New York. And it was really when I was uh, in New York that I sort of came upon the gym box idea. I was uh, looking to join a gym, uh, probably because I was a very skinny sort of 19-year-old and uh, all the Americans were quite butch. Um, <laughs> and I went into my first gym, which was called New York Health and Racket, which was a traditional gym. It was uh, wooden floors, um, white walls, uh, Madonna music being played, and I, I absolutely hated the experience. And after six, six months of being a member, I left. And I, I genuinely thought I'd never join another gym. And then I got a flyer that was put in my hand about a gym experience that was like no other, which advertised um, quirky classes, live DJs, and I thought I'd give it a go. And the first week I got taught boxing by Muhammad Ali's ex-trainer. The next week it happened to be by a drag queen that happened to be a fantastic boxer. So this was all about boxing there at this stage? It was wasn't. It? It, so it was a business called Crunch. Um, so it had a boxing element which appealed to me, but it really had a, a, a wide array of classes that were appealing to everybody. And when you walked in there, it was very, very similar to a gym box. There was uh, graffiti on the walls. It really was about the the attitude of the place and the feel that you got from the place, which was hard to describe. But there was an atmosphere there. It's a gritty urban kind of. It was. Cool. It, it was. Gr it was gritty urban and cool. Um, and it was really, it was really. Except for the drag queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really that experience that sort of sparked my interest 
um, in health and fitness, but I didn't have any desire to go into the gym industry. I just, I just enjoyed being there. Anyway, I left New York in 1997. Having made a success of it? Or? Yeah, having made a success of advertising, yes. I, I got into a relatively senior position um, in account management at, in advertising. I was always a bit of a frustrated creative, but financially I was doing well. I was enjoying it. And then in 1997, I just thought it was time to come back to London. Um, so I got a transfer back by the agency I was working at, which was an agency called McCann Erickson. Uh, got transferred back and basically was stumbling around in London looking for a gym experience similar to what I'd seen in New York and quite frankly it just didn't exist. And sort of a little bit naively and I suppose slightly arrogantly, I thought, well, how difficult is it to set up a business that I'd seen uh, out in the States? Was it a light bulb moment? You know, you saw the gap in the market and you thought, I'll do this. I think it was twofold. One is I was becoming slightly tired of advertising. The second thing is I was starting to come to the recognition that I wasn't a great uh, employee, uh, wanted to do things a little bit my own way. And the third thing really was I saw an opportunity and I thought there is nothing in the UK. At the time, there were four big chains. There was Holmes Place and Cannons. Mm. Uh, there was LA Fitness and Fitness First. And the Harbour Club was a big name then, wasn't the it? So the Harbour Club was a, uh, a big name as, as in terms of it had a USP of being a upscale gym, but it was still only one unit. Mm. When you're looking at opportunities to join a gym in central London, there were four businesses. But what I found the most interesting is they were all products and none of them had a brand. And what I mean by that is if you took the sign off a Holmes Place and a Canons and you put a member in there, they would be hard pushed to say which one was the Holmes Place, which one was the Canons. And likewise with Fitness First and LA Fitness. The only difference being between all of them is Homespace and Cannons had a swimming pool, LA Fitness and Fitness First didn't have a swimming pool. But in terms of a brand that spoke a language to a consumer, there was, there was a big opportunity mm -hmm. to develop a brand that had a distinctive tone of voice and a distinctive feel which was really piggybacking on what I'd seen in the States. You describe yourself as, as a combination of arrogant and naive, which is pretty, it's pretty explosive, isn't it, in, in, in the wrong situation? I mean, do you think in a sense that that arrogance and that naivety are, are essential in an entrepreneur to an extent? I think in terms of naivety, I think it is essential um, in the early days. I think if you look at any getting into any business, if you analyse it too carefully the cons will always outweigh the pros. And what I mean by that is to set up any business is very, very difficult. If you spend a lot of time thinking, can I do it, you'll talk your way out of it. So I think when I look back at the early days, one of my best assets was I was just naive. I didn't realise how many problems there were going to be or how difficult it was going to be. I just jumped in head first. And when a problem arose, I tried to find a way around it. Um, Arrogance maybe isn't the right word. I don't, I, don't, I don't consider myself as arrogant. But I think you have to have a certain self-confidence and you have to have the ability to dictate very, very early on that actually I believe, and maybe it's a sense of belief rather than arrogance, you have to believe in what you're doing. Because if you don't believe in it, no one else will ever believe in it. So you had uh, a belief in this idea, but as you've already said... It's a long way, isn't it, from having that idea to actually making it happen and, crucially, then making it work. So what was the next stage of the journey? 
So I basically put down the idea on, I say a business plan, it was really a couple of pages, which was basically a wish list. Wouldn't it be great if you could create a gym that spoke to the 25 to 35 year old market? Because the majority of members in any gym are 25 to 35. Uh, and yet nobody had developed a, a, a language or a tonality that suited that market. So wouldn't it be great if you could create a brand that that market could relate to? Wouldn't it be great if you could make the place look visually fantastic? So why not have nightclub designers create the interiors? Why not have live music? Um, and wouldn't it be great at the heartbeat of it, you could create an array of exciting, unique classes? And that was really what the business plan was. So I put that down on paper. Um, there was two slight problems. One is you've got to find a property. And to find a property, you've got to have money. It's a bit chicken and egg. Even if I had the money, the property was still going to be a problem because uh, landlords want covenants and they want proof of trading. Likewise, to get the money, you need to have the property secured because otherwise people are a bit reluctant to put their money in, not knowing where the first location is going to be. So there was a, a fair bit of plate spinning in terms of sort of a two-pronged attack. One is talking to the property market uh, and convincing them, yes, you had the money. And another thing, talking to investors and convincing them, yes, you had a property. In other words, being a good blagger. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think it was, it was, you're trying to excite two sides without having secured, secured anything. There um, was no family money? No, no, no. no. Like there was, I had no money of my own to put into it. The difficulty of gyms is also the initial capex cost is mm. significant. Mm. So even back then, and the first gym box opened in 2003, uh, the first gym cost £2 million. Um, I put everything I had at the time, which was £30,000. Um, but it's still a fair shortfall. What ended up happening is I got in incredibly lucky. Um, I'm a big Watford fan. And I bought a on-digital package to watch the football. Uh, nobody else bought on-digital, which is why they went bust after about nine months. But I did <laughs> buy it. Uh, anyway, I invited friends around to watch the football. And um, I invited three friends around. I ended up with 20 friends coming around. Um, at half time, I'd uh, run out of beer and crisps and I left the flat. And somebody was sitting there who I'd never met before was reading the business plan when I got back, which, which annoyed me. Anyway, I got a phone call from him the next day and he said, actually, you know, really like what you're doing. My father is a non-exec of Fitness First. Why don't you go and talk to him about it? Well, and I went, is lucky, isn't I, it? And I went down and spoke to him. He put me in contact with the CEO of Fitness First. Um, and Fitness First ended up backing the entire enterprise. I had tried talking to high net worths and private equity and banks, um, but it was a needle in a haystack. I mean, to set up a business where I had never been involved in the business, where I didn't have enough money of my own to put into the business um, on a concept that existed in the States but had never existed in the UK was, 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 a, was a tough call. Mm. Fitness First then became your partners? They put in all the money. They took the majority of the shares in Gymbox. Most importantly, they had the experience on how to build a gym, which I never had. The arrangement was they were silent partners, 
So the vision was my vision. That came from me. And they were willing to give you total freedom on that? They gave me complete freedom Pretty on Pretty extraordinary, that. isn't yeah, it, when you it think was, about that now? It, 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 it was phenomenal, really, what they did. Mm. Because in terms of the technical side of building a gym, how much water you need, how much airflow, air conditioning units, I was completely naive on it. I was a marketing guy. Um, the first one opened in Holborn in September 2003. And what sort of size of property mm. was that? Uh, the first one was 20,000 square feet, so a significant size property. Yeah. yeah. What was interesting is, you know, from a membership standpoint, it worked very, very well, very, very quickly. Uh, within the first six months of trading, we'd had more press written about us than the entire uh, competitive market had combined. So we sort of hit the right note with the consumer from from day one. And that was a deliberate policy from, from your point of view, wasn't it? This was the real ad man coming out. You were going in there, you were being cheeky, you were pushing your luck, yeah. you were making a point to be noticed. So the one thing I would say we were consistent with was the advertising message. So what we wanted the brand to stand for was developed and committed to on paper. And how we wanted the brand to be communicated was very, very deliberate. There were a lot of things on the journey which weren't as deliberate. But the the onset of what the brand was to stand for, um, the USPs of the brand, and this adopting this sort of cheeky, irreverent tone, it was deliberate. I think a lot of the tone uh, was set probably by myself in terms of what, did I, what used to make me chuckle. Mm. Um, and sometimes... Uh, we probably pushed the envelope a little bit too far. But but on the whole, I was 30 years of age at the time myself. So I could understand the market we were speaking to. But you did push your luck, didn't you? I mean, bitch boxing and chav fighting. You were investigated by the advertising authorities and, and, and found, you know, not guilty, my lord, and all that. But you pushed your luck, for sure. We, we did. And I think, I think part of it was majority of PR for a business that is one site is positive PR. It's, it, it changes as you get bigger. Mm. But in the, in the early days, providing we weren't being perceived as being racist or sexist, and the definition of sexism has changed over the years. Mm. Um, bitch fighting I don't think would work now. The irony of, of bitch boxing, actually that wasn't a name we came up with. Um, there was a, there was a, a boxing instructor um, she was a female fighter and her name was Kathy the Bitch Brown. So she came to teach the class for us and I said, what do we call this thing, Kathy? And she goes, call it bitch boxing. Um, so the, the intent <laughs> wasn't there to offend. However, <laughs> we ended up with a lot of negative and some positive publicity on the class. But no such thing as uh, bad publicity. When you are a startup and you have to get yourself noticed, I think you can get away with a lot more and the element of brand building is a lot more important than when you become a more established brand. It wasn't all plain sailing, was it? You, you had a huge flood disaster on, on day one, day two of the new club. We just spent about £2 million on the fit-out and within the first day, the landlord's tanks, it was also a new building we were moving into, flooded the basement and we were residing in the basement. Uh, what we had to do was strip all the floors. We had a painted, screeded floor uh, and we had to take all the paint off the floor and leave the screed for about three months just to dry. The beauty of 
brand as people walked in there and they thought it was part of this irreverent brand that we'd created. And there was various <laughs> comments of, we love what you've done with the floors as well, which was essentially just a plain screed. <laughs> Is it true you put signs outside uh, competitors saying, better gym this way? I mean, if you have, to, you have to sort of, in some way, also cast your mind back to the time. So the traditional style of gym advertising was a thin person that used to be fat, holding a pair of his old trousers uh, around his waist with a, a weight loss message. You know, mm. I lost two stone in three months, you can too. Well, the other way of doing it, which was a perfect looking 25 year old couple normally smiling at you saying you can look like me. And I, I found the whole um, approach to advertising a bit insulting. And, you know, I was patronizing, never, patronizing. And, you know, it was I was never that either of those people, but I still wanted to exercise. So we, we took on a slightly different approach of humorous advertising with humorous messages. So when we first launched, we did a, a sort of a controversial fly posting campaign in the local area. There's no point advertising across all of London when you're just one gym. So and in and around Holborn. It was all in and around Holborn. And, and one strand of that was we put footprints leading from all the gyms in the area from their entrance to our entrance with a sign saying better gym this way. The local population loved it. The local competition didn't. <laughs> Most of it is you just need to put yourself on the map. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest challenges of, a, of any startup is you may have a great product, but how do you get past that, that initial startup stage where no one knows about you? It was a conscious decision to put ourselves on the map and create a splash from day one. Were you at any point scared? Were you intimidated or frightened by the financial commitment you were making to this concept this idea you have from a personal perspective i think i've always been i've always been scared and slightly paranoid uh, of failure so before the first gym opened i was petrified that it would be myself in a 20,000 square foot gym punching a punch bag by myself mm. as the business has grown to where it is today um, i've been scared along the whole journey and i always say having a brand is a bit like holding sand sometimes you're not quite sure how you're doing it, but you're petrified of it slipping between your fingers. I also think when I, when, I, when I look back across this 15 years, that some of that paranoia is healthy. Um, because if you always think something is about to go wrong, you work pretty hard to make sure it doesn't go wrong. Mm. So take me back to, to little Richard Hilton, little, little boy Richard Hilton. What kind of a child were you? I was a relatively nondescript child. So... <laughs> In, in terms of my family life, my uh, father was an entrepreneur. Both my grandparents were entrepreneurs. So the ability to make that leap was relatively easy for me because I grew up in a, in a household where people were trying to do their own businesses. Um, I wasn't a great student. One of my regrets is I never went to university. Do you um, still regret that now? Yeah, I still do regret do that. You? Yeah, I do regret it. So... Um, the part, some of the parts that make me a, a good entrepreneur, I think, are <laughs> the ability to think for myself and not to follow the script um, too religiously. The ability to read something from start to finish um, wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't my strength. Um, the ability to revise and sit there still isn't my strength. Not a studious boy. I'm not a, I wasn't a studious boy. I wasn't a great student. When I started working... Uh, I wasn't a brilliant employee, 
because I wanted to do things my way. And where that uh, came from was probably, uh, probably came from uh, the element of, uh, of being told what to do at school. I never enjoyed it. I wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it. Um, so it, I think a lot of those factors probably led me to saying I want to do something on my own one day. Were you a competitive kid? Because I know you, you, you loved golf. You wanted to be a professional golfer at one point. I am, even now, the most competitive person you're ever likely to meet. So <laughs> I'm horrendously competitive. Seriously? I'm horrendously competitive. Do you have siblings? I have uh, a brother and a sister. And were you competitive with them when I you were a I don't remember being uh, overtly competitive with them. But even to this day, even with my kids, if I'm playing sport with my kids or if you're in this game of FIFA on the PlayStation, uh, I can't let anybody win. You are a competitive dad. I'm a, I'm a very competitive person. Oh, do you shout from the sidelines? And, and no, 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 okay. no, no. I, I'm not that guy. I'm, if I'm in one-on-one -on -one with my child and I'm playing table tennis with them, um, my wife was always saying, let him win. He's, t he's 10. And I can't, <laughs> you can't do it. I can't it. do it. Listening to the Piper podcast, How I Grew My Brand, and I'm talking to Richard Hilton from Gymbox. So, at what point did you think you were actually onto a success? Within six months, we knew that we'd had a success with Gymbox Holborn. That didn't mean it was going to be successful on a second site or a third site. So, because you've got it right once, you don't know if you are, if it's all if, if you're going to create a chain or if you've just got a one-off. But I felt from pretty early on we had something special in terms of the way the business was growing, in terms of membership, in terms of profitability, in terms of the brand was developing. It wasn't a business that took a long time to take hold. Within the first six months of trading, I thought we had something. Mm. OK, so let's talk a little bit about the numbers. You know, Piper have this theory about 7.17.70, which they regard as inflection points in the business it might be in terms of turnover, you know, the journey from 7 to 17 million or numbers of sites or perhaps numbers of employees. And, and that journey between, I mean, now you've got how many? 11, 11 sites. I think there's been several inflections. So along the journey, we did uh, several fundraising. Uh, we did a management buyout of Fitness First where all the shares came back. So there's been, there's been a lot of things that have happened on that journey. So it, for us, it hasn't just been about uh, hitting a certain number of sites. There's been lots of twists and turns along along the journey. But I, I think the, the principle of step change, it does happen. And if I look at where we were, is the, you know, the first gym was pretty much uh, solely run by myself and the club manager. And the culture was created very much from us. The challenge is how do you maintain a culture when you're no longer involved in the business yourself. So you mm. have to put in an infrastructure to enable the culture to flourish and an identity that is beyond just the founder or the key directors. There are also step changes in terms of process, and that's from uh, the finance department, from the sales team, uh, from branding and marketing. You know, you, you have to take a, more, a much more systematic and organised view of it. The other thing is as you grow as a brand some of the risks that you take in terms of what we spoke about being about being a rebel brand mm. you no longer can do because now you've got uh, private equity partners who may not 
want the brand to to live in that environment. You've got landlords that don't want necessarily rebel brands in their building. So you, you, you do have to modify the way you build a business. In terms of the messaging, the messaging hasn't changed. So what we consider the benefits of the business, the quirky classes, the interior design, the live music, those are still what we consider to be why people should come to us. And mm. the antidote for boring gyms has been a phrase that we've had in existence for a long time. Where are you in terms of, of growth now? You say you've got 11 clubs. I think the most recent one was Ealing, wasn't it, at, so at e the end of last year? That's so. right. We we're at 11 gyms. In terms of business size, we're about a £30 million turnover business and on our way to be about a £10 million EBITDA business. So mm -hmm. it's a highly profitable business. Let's talk a little bit more about, about the step changes that you alluded to. I think there's a variety of step changes. So how do you maintain culture? Uh, how do you put in um, the correct systems? How do you have the correct reporting methods? If I look at the business now, in terms of data reporting and be able to understand the customer journey, we've put systems in along the way that have improved the visibility we have on the business. Um, we have a lot greater insight into our members. The, the negative is it is a lot more difficult. Now, you can do it. So we, I believe we've maintained our culture and our attitude. It is difficult. And I think um, you have to make the business about that. And you mm. make it that nobody's afraid to step forward with ideas on classes. Uh, I think hiring is incredibly important. Hiring was always important. So in the early days, when it was one gym, you would just handpick the people yourself. You still have to have the ability to be able to hire your superstars mm. and be disciplined in who you hire at every step. I also think with property, you know, a step changes when we're in the position where we are now, where you're looking for more rapid growth. The, the danger is what made Jimbox fantastic was we would cherry pick our sites. There was very, very little pressure on us to do a new gym. We did it when we wanted to do it. That meant we went for what we were called slam dunk sites. As you grow and there's, there's a lot of investment into businesses and they say, OK, you've got to hit our plan. And our plan is we need to be at X number of sites in X number of years. You have to start taking a little bit more risk. So you have to be more careful and you have to put in more due diligence on the sites. So you have to scale up in sort of every department. You have to be more yeah. sophisticated with your property. You have to be more sophisticated with your marketing budgets. You have to have people there that are there to create the culture rather than the culture just happening to come organically from a founder. Because you, as, as the founder age 30, were the customer, weren't you? And, and it was a cool, gritty and idiosyncratic and all those things we've discussed. There comes a point when you are no longer that customer. You know, you, you, you don't want to be embarrassing dad, do you? You you have to hire the youth and the cool and the grit and all, all of that. So how difficult is it to identify that team and, and, and find them? The difficult part for any founder is the letting go side, is to realise, actually, I'm no longer in that demographic and other people know best. Uh, and I think for any founder... The ability to recognise that people there who can do it better than you can do it is an important aspect. It's also a bit of a, a dent to somebody's ego. 
So you, you have to be able to be of the view of, I want to do what's right for the business, even if that doesn't involve me anymore. Now, you've mentioned that you, you got private equity involved uh, along the way, a couple of times along the way, and, and you did get a big investment uh, a couple of years ago. Tell me about the process of doing that. How did you identify which company you wanted to work with? How did you identify the role that you wanted them to take? I mean, the, the working with private equity is, is a step change for any business um, because uh, you become a lot more accountable to other people. They're putting an investment into your business. And from my standpoint, I always wanted to make sure that I did the best for that investment and made sure that the goal of making money for them was achieved. It does change a business. Um, it does create challenges and pressures on, on a business. In terms of selection, I mean, there's two There's two ways we used to look at it. As One is, uh, which every uh, business founder would look at it, was who has the best terms on the table, so in terms of valuation. But as importantly for me, it was who do I want to work with? Who do I like working with? So I think the, the personality fit for a business is, you know, my view was we were going to be with these people for the next three to five years, I've got to like who I'm sitting around a boardroom with. If I don't like them from day one, even if they had the best terms on the table, we didn't always take it. There's a difference, isn't there, between accepting investment in your business and actually selling out or selling a big part of your business, transitioning out of the business. What is the difference in that and how difficult was it to do that? Well, when you accept money into the business to grow... Um, I was, as a chief exec, still managing that growth trajectory. Mm -hmm. So we would accept investment, but it was under the understanding that we're putting money into the business, but Richard, you are the person that is going to deliver that growth for us. You're going to take us on that journey for the next three to five years. In 2016, uh, there was a different transaction, which was there was investment coming into the business, but I wasn't going to be the chief exec to manage that growth. Uh, I've always said the most difficult part of running a business is getting it off the ground initially. The second most difficult challenge is to be able to get out of the business yourself. And I think you have to be systematic in that approach as well. So even though I sold the majority of my stake in 2016, the plan to enable us to sell was probably put in about 2013. I put in a chief exec in 2013 who effectively ran the business with me. I changed my title. I was still very, very actively involved. I'd spoken to the private equity partner at the time and said, this is my plan. I need to fully integrate another CEO into the business. I need to teach him everything I was doing. Uh, if you try and sell a business without having a chief exec identified who can run the business, you make it more difficult mm. to sell it. I'm just thinking back to the people we've spoken to over the last few months, and I think you are the only one of our founders who've actually sold their baby. <laughs> how, it, does, how difficult was it to do that? It wasn't difficult. Wasn't um, it? No, I think, I, I think when, you, when you also come to a point where you realise the business is better off without you, I was mm. becoming scared to to grow the business and it's a brilliant business and the, and the business deserved to go on a rapid growth stage. 
But I wasn't interested in that journey. Mm. I had taken it to where I wanted to take it. And I wanted the best for the business. And I realized the best for the business wasn't necessarily going to be me running it. When I was reading up about you and the business in preparation for this, the thing that struck me was how uh, organized you were, how careful and how you planned. And, you know, this fail to prepare, prepare to fail, that mantra. And also you said you never wing it. You've never been that kind of person. And it just strikes me that you are unusually dispassionate in your view of it for a founder. I think I was, I was passionate about the business when I was working in the business and I wanted the best for the business. But I did always see the business as a, as a business. Was um, it a means to make money? Did you want to get rich? I think in the early days, I never th- didn't think about getting rich. I wanted to create a brilliant business and I wanted to create the best gym in London. I think along the way, I realised it could make me rich. And then I saw it in a more dispassionate way of how do I then engineer this uh, to make me money. I, I'm extremely passionate about the business. I still am passionate about what we do and I want it to be brilliant. But I wasn't scared to let it go. And mm-hmm. I didn't feel that I was going to be one of these founders that was holding on to my baby and not wanting to relinquish it. You have made this huge success with Jimbox. What does success feel like? I take great pride and satisfaction that the gym became what I wanted it to become, which was um, something that were recognised to be different, that there is a good product under there. And I genuinely think we are the best fitness product uh, in the UK. In terms of financial success, it's given me a security and it's given my family a security that I do think is important. I think, you know, having... An, an element of being able to reward yourself after all the hard work is satisfying. Mm. That's a tough question. It hasn't uh, hasn't changed me. So the funny thing is, you know, have I changed from pre-selling it to now? It hasn't changed me. It hasn't it doesn't change my spending habits. I mean, things we used to do, we still do. I enjoy spending time with the family. I'm a an avid football fan, so I still go to the football. We go on a few more holidays than we used to. Um, And I still have an interest in all things brand related. Mm. So, you know, what will I do going forward? I think it's highly likely I will set up another business. That was going to be my next question. There's another brand, is there, itching to kind of get So when I transitioned the business in 2016, I I genuinely thought uh, I was done with the business world. And I just needed to... I was incredibly tired from the gym box journey. Um... And I thought, I won't go back into business. And there was a variety of people saying, you will, you will, just wait and see. And then you go through this, these concerns of, well, is there another idea there? You know, I, I'm not a massive ideas guy, but I came up with a good idea with Jimbox. And just as you're getting bored, lo and behold, another idea pops up. So I do think it is highly likely that I will be setting up another business within the next year or so. Oh, really? Okay. Will you come back and talk to me when you do? (laughs) If it's successful, you have me back. (laughs) Richard Hilton, so interesting talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mary. You've been listening to the Piper Podcast, How I Grew My Brand. Join me again next time.